Thank you, Michelle. Thank you for everybody being here today. Picture with me, if you will, three prisoners in a cell, all guilty of murder. One says to the others, I'm more righteous than you guys because I didn't do it, though they know he did. The second one says, I'm more righteous because even though I admit that I did this, I counterbalance it by doing good deeds. You know, like feeding the poor and I bought my nephew a bike. The third inmate says, no, I'm more righteous than you guys because I'm member of a religious organization. I'm religious and, and therefore that makes me righteous. Question, which one is righteous? None, no one. That's right, you got it right. The, uh, the guy that says he didn't do it, well, denying guilt, that doesn't make you righteous. The person that says, well, I do good things to offset. Well, the thing is, even once you do something bad, doing something good doesn't make the, the bad thing that you did disappear, right? It's, it's still there. We're, we're still guilty. And being religious, as good as that may be, that too doesn't wipe out past misdeeds. So which one of them is righteous? None of them. Now there's a problem. And the problem is we all are unrighteous. And I'm going to take you to court today and myself with you. And I'm hoping that by the end of today, you will acknowledge the guilty verdict. And you will also begin to realize why that is the best thing that could ever happen to you. Ever. We'll see if we can go there. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to, Re to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, or if you don't, you can look on the screen. We've got the text on the screen today. The first thing Paul, the writer of this epistle, is going to say to us is that no one is righteous. Verse 9, he says, what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all, for we have all already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. And Paul begins to quote the Old Testament to back up what he's saying. This is from Psalm 14. There's no one righteous, not even one, but we are told that humans are intrinsically good. That is basic to our nature. We are really good. Dinesh D'Souza argues against what he calls the modern liberal belief that human nature is intrinsically good. And thus that great conflicts in the world, you know, whether local or global, the great conflicts that are happening about us, they're just due to misunderstandings. And if we could just get together and talk, everything would work out. All right. Well, let's continue on Paul's line of thinking and see where this goes. Verse 11, there is no one who understands. 
There is no one who seeks God. This word for seek means to seek with determination, to wholeheartedly seek after God. Now, it's interesting. Many churches refer to uh, people that come in, uh, unbelievers, as seekers. Yet, this is a misnomer. Seeking God is antithetical to the human disposition. We seek for pleasure or religion or happiness or good times, but not for God, his holiness, his pleasure, his righteousness, and his face. The statement that there is no one who seeks after God, Romans 3.11, means that no one seeks God without God first prompting them to do so. John 6.44, Jesus speaking, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Paul continued, verse 12, All have turned away. They have together become worthless. Not only are men not seeking God, they are running from him. This word, turned away, is used of wild animals fleeing in one text. In another text, it's talking about armies, you know, soldiers fleeing the enemy. That's what people are doing when it comes to God. They're fleeing. Next, there is no one who does good, not even one. Now, this one we're going to push back on. I I understand that, but hold on. Is Paul suggesting that there is absolutely no one who does good in any sense at all? Now, we know that's not true. We we see people do good. We see people building, um, building habitat, homes for habitat, habitat for humanity. We see people doing good, and yes, they we do some good. That's true. And uh, some people are better than others. Mother Teresa is better than, say, Vladimir Putin, who has, over a year ago, created a war of aggression uh, against Ukraine and has invaded and caused much suffering. So not everybody is at the absolute zero mark. We understand that. There are some good people who do wonderful things. They help in natural natural disasters. They feed the poor. They build homes, as I said. All of this is commendable. But the basic reason man does even these good things is something along the line of self-gratification. Man is not wholly good from the inside out, but he does some good things. We'll grant that. But beyond that, men and women may start to do good, but we seldom carry it through. We fall short. We don't marry, and this is the most important thing, even the good that we do, the limited good that we do, does not merit that God should praise us or exalt us. Our good deeds don't merit God's praise. This is quite an anthropology, isn't it? Quite a study of man. This is biblical anthropology. Man is bad 
ignorant, rebellious, wayward, useless. Paul goes on with a series of quotes from the Old Testament. The first ones deal with the corruption of our communication. What is our communication like? What is what comes out of our mouth really like? He says first, their throats are open graves. Now you can't imagine anything worse for the Old Testament saint than to picture an open grave and out of that open grave comes the smell of a decaying corpse. That was the worst. And, God, and Paul says, that's what our mouths are like. Then he says, their tongues practice deceit. My grandpappy, Philip Walker. He was a lawyer. And then as I got older, he retired and he was able to spend time with me and my brother. And I really appreciated him so much. But he took time sometimes to teach me things of value. And I remember him telling a story. All these years later, I still remember it. And he told me about a guy and he's talking to these other two guys. And this man asks the others, are you a liar or a truth teller? And the first guy piped up and said, well, I'm a truth teller. And the man said, sir, you're a liar. And the other man said, I'm a liar. And so he said, you're a truth teller. <laughs> Don't we fudge things I do. I try not to, but, you know, I'm always running a little close on time, and I should allow more time. Anybody else there? Anybody get places a little late? Yeah, okay, all right. And, and what do we do? Say, the first thing when we get there, say, you know, it's my fault that I'm late. No, we don't do that. You know, it, <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, I'll say, uh, I live on the other side of the tracks, and sometimes that train in Keller, it stops me. And I'm five minutes late because of that. And I'll say, well, I'm sorry, I, I, that train. But I know that train stops me on a regular basis. Why don't I get up earlier? Why am I making excuses for myself? Isn't this human nature? Next, Paul says, the poison of vipers is on their lips. This is from Psalm 140. The analogy is of a snake. The fangs of a deadly snake originally lie folded back. They're folded back in the upper jaw. But when it throws open its head, they flip down so that the poison of the asps is tucked under the lips until they're ready to strike. And then those hollow fangs flip out, drop down, and they inject venom like through a needle, through two needles into their victim. And Paul is saying, our words are like that venom. And it's not just Paul. He's quoting the Bible. Okay. And, and truly, our words are deadly. 
from politicians crafting world policy to the family that's split up and, and people won't talk to one another because of what has been said. Our words can cause great chaos. And then he says, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Next, he deals with the corruption of our actions. Our actions. Verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. Robert Haldane wrote, the most savage animals do not destroy so many of their own species to appease their hunger as man destroys his fellow man to satiate his ambition, his revenge, his greed. If we study history, we see this is true. The last full century, the 20th century, was perhaps the deadliest known to man. It is common understanding among historians that more than 100 million people were either killed or starved to death intentionally. In China alone, 40 million people died if they didn't support a particular Chinese leader. Uh, the most died by the soldiers coming in and taking all of their food, say they're farmers, and all of their food is taken to support the political leader and his people and his army, and they're left to starve, and starve they did. Those that didn't starve, the political leader in China sent out gangs to beat up and to kill his opponents. That's just one nation. Multiply that times others, Russia and others. A hundred million people killed in one century. Verse 16, ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace, they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You live in this world. Let me ask you, does that describe what is happening today? I believe it does. So Paul says, the whole world is held accountable to God. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. In the book of Job, we find Job defending himself. And he's, he's, uh, he's suffered greatly. God has allowed Satan to do horrible things to his family and to all his possessions. And Job doesn't have insight into that. He doesn't know why. And so he begins to defend himself as his three friends friends, <laughs> come and begin to offer him encouragement, but finally wind up accusing him, Job, you must have done something wrong to cause all this. And Job begins to defend himself and to argue his case that he is righteous. <laughs> but at the end of the book, God makes a surprising appearance and speaks to Job. Ask him, Job, where, where were you when I created the world? And, and on and on. And at the end of this, Job says, I'm sorry. 
I spoke out of turn. I shouldn't have said what I said. God, you are great and mighty, mysterious and awesome. And I am lowly and I shut my mouth before you. And that's what Paul is saying we should do as humans. When we realize how great God is and and where we are spiritually, let it shut our mouths. Don't proclaim how righteous we are. Even those in a church, be careful. Don't do that. Let the facts of the matter close our mouths and understand our guilt. Now, he's been talking about the law. He's introduced the law again. And sometimes we think, well, if we follow the law, we'll be righteous. But watch this. The law cannot deliver us. Verse 20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. The purpose of the law was not to provide people with a way to be righteous. The purpose of the law was to give us an indication of how great a need that we have so that we will turn to God. J.B. Phillips says, It is the straight edge of the law that shows us how crooked we are. James says the law is like a mirror, a mirror. You know, you look at a mirror and you see, oh, man, I've got a, I've got a, uh, I've got a piece of spinach stuck in my teeth. Now, you don't take the mirror off the wall. The purpose of the mirror is not to wash your face. It doesn't wash your face. You don't take the mirror off the wall and rub it against your face, do you? No, no, of course not. The mirror simply is a reflection of who you are or what you look like so you can deal with it. Well, that's what the law is. It's a reflection. It tells us who we are so that in our failings we'll seek God and turn to Christ who then can be our Savior. We can sum it up this way. The strongest and greatest argument for the sinfulness of man is Scripture. What does God have to say about it? And that is precisely what you have in Romans chapter 3. This passage is one of the most forceful in Scripture that deals with the sinfulness of man. Now, it does not mean that every person is as bad as they possibly could be, Not at all. But it does show that mankind in every area of his being, internal, external, deeds, words, whatever it is, whatever category you want to choose about mankind, we fall short of God's holy standards. This teaching on the sinfulness of man is something you will only find in the word of God. You won't learn about this outside of Scripture. This is a fact. This is not taught in any public school curriculum, though it should be. It is more important than anything else they teach. Paul's language 
in our text is judicial. It's the language of the courtroom. This is a trial, and it has an arraignment, an indictment, and it has a verdict. What is that verdict? Guilty. What good, now that I've got you totally depressed, (laughs) what good could possibly come out of that? But I'm going to say to you, this is good news. Why is it good news? Because the righteousness comes through faith alone in Christ alone. Man is condemned and without excuse. The Roman poet Horace laid down lines of guidance for people who were writing plays to be set up on the stage. And he criticizes those who too early introduced the device of bringing a God on the stage to solve a problem. He says you shouldn't bring a God on the stage unless it's a God-sized problem. All right. Martin Luther found those words of Horace and took them up and applied them to forgiveness of sin. And he said, this is where you've got to bring God on the stage. He says, the problem is a God-sized problem. So it takes God to solve it. Surely man's problem, as Paul summarized it, is one need that needs God to solve it. Again, going back to Job and his story, Bildad, one of his three friends, Bildad, he was kind of a short guy. He was the shoe height. Okay. Oh, sorry. Bildad said this, how then can a man be just with God? How can he be clean who is born of woman. This is a perplexing thing he didn't have an answer for. These questions are questions that every person with a brain should be seeking an answer for. Somewhere in the world, there's a man cutting himself with a knife, hoping by his pain to win the approval of his deity. You see, this is what religions do. They they say, religion will tell you, this religion or that religion or another religion will tell you the way that you are right before God is by changing your deeds and by doing things that will gain God's approval. Somewhere in the world, there's a man who's lying on a bed of nails proving by his mastery of pain to prove his worthiness of eternal life. In the Middle East, millions of people pray towards Mecca this morning, following the dictates of their religion, hoping to gain favor and hoping that the scales of their good deeds will outweigh their bad deeds. In Haiti, followers kill, followers of voodoo kill a chicken and lay it on a makeshift altar, hoping to gain the favor and good fortune and blessing from God. 
Men and women do these things desperately trying to be right with God. They do what they do because they hope to appease God, to please God, to pacify God, to somehow manipulate God into favoring their cause. Well, from killing chickens to bowing to Mecca and all the rest, they do what they do because they want to be right with God. But God has a better way. Paul now moves from all men, men's condemnation to God's solution. Verse 21. Now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness, this rightness, is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Never think that our faith contributes anything of our worthiness to God's gift. Our faith doesn't commend us to God. Our faith is merely the empty hand reaching out to receive what God has to give. Here's Paul again. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. There's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. You know, the, the Jews were saying, hey, we got the law. Just having the law makes us righteous. You know, we never followed it. But having the law made us righteous. And, and, and to that he says, no, you're all in the same place. All have been found guilty. All have fallen short, Jew and Gentile. And in fact, you know, some offer... The idea, even to this day, that there's one way of salvation for the Jewish people and a different way for Gentiles. But that's not the case. And Paul is making the case there's only one way of salvation. Why? Because there's one God who justifies Jew and Gentile. We all have the same pathway, and it's open through Jesus Christ. The act where God declares us righteous is called justification. The term justified is another legal term drawn from the ancient courtroom. It means to be declared not guilty or to be acquitted of the charges against you. The Greek word for justified is also a relational word referring to being brought into a right relationship with God. The root of the word means righteousness. So it certainly has something to do with right standing before God. Justification is the exact opposite of condemnation. Justification is an act, a one-time act, not a process. And it's something God does, not man. 
Justification is a forensic or legal term. On the one hand, it means to acquit of sin, so the negative is dealt with. But on the positive side, it means to declare righteous. Just how righteous is the believer in Christ? Well, God takes the righteousness of his son Christ and puts it on the account of any person, male or female, Jew or Gentile, who places his or her faith in Christ. Can you imagine that? God taking the righteousness of his son, the only person who never broke the law, the person who lived always with God's favor, walking in God's way. He took that righteousness. And if you're a believer in Christ, put it to your account once for all time. It's a beautiful thing God has done for us. Wow. Now, I do want to make a warning I want to warn us, caution us, not to confuse justification with sanctification. Justification is an act, not a process. And it's something God does, not man. Justification is a forensic legal term, one that means to acquit and also to declare righteous. It does not mean to make righteous. So sanctification is very different. Sanctification is a process. It's a lifelong process that begins once we place our faith in Christ. So you can see on this chart the differences between justification, which is when we begin to be Christians, when we place our faith in Christ. And immediately beginning upon that time, God begins a work in us to sanctify us, to make us progressively more and more holy, to make us more and more like he has declared us to be. Isn't that a great thing? He doesn't say, all right, you guys clean yourselves up, and then after you clean yourselves up, I'll, I'll wash you of your sin. He doesn't do that. Instead, he washes us of our sin. He makes us clean in his sight, pure as the driven snow. And then he says, because you're this way, I want you to learn to live in a new way. I want you to walk in holiness. I want you to experience in your walk what I've already declared you to be by making you justified. We read Romans 3, verse 24. I want to camp on that one phrase we saw in that, justified freely by his grace. So before you leave this, apply it to yourself. If you are a believer, in your own mind, I want you to do this. I want you to say to yourself, I am declared righteous. Not because of anything I do, not because of my deeds. I am declared righteous by God's gracious act. And my friends, the more you think about that, the more it will make you want to be that way in your life. Verse 25. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by 
faith. It describes an altar that in the Old Testament is called the most holy of place. The most holy place are the holy of holies. And there, once a year on the day of Yom Kippur, the high priest would enter and he would take the blood of an animal and he would place it on the altar, on what was called the mercy seat. God had told them to construct a chest. And inside that chest were the Ten Commandments. The finger of God wrote those Ten Commandments on stone. And they were preserved in that chest. The chest itself was covered with gold. And on top of the chest were fashioned two pieces of art, two angels. And they looked inward. And it was between them, on the surface of this chest, that the blood of the animal sacrificed was brought in once a year and was placed before God. And God was said to be propitiated. They had done what God said, and he didn't hold their sin against the nation. Now, we have a problem here. Because Scripture says... The blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. So what do we do with that? We'll go back to the description of the day. God's title for it is Yom Kippur, Day of Covering. God was picturing those sins there, and the animal blood was placed upon them, so to speak, so that God would not see those for another year. Now, it was always precarious because you think, what if, what if you know, all the sins of all the nation were laid right there? What if the high priest failed to do what he was supposed to do? We're in a bad spot. And every year it had to be repeated over and over and over again for centuries. The payment was not made. Until Christ. He is the sacrifice that truly not just covered sin, but took it away. Remember what John the Baptist said when he said to, he said to his disciples, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. This Old Testament sacrificial system was a picture in advance telling us what we could expect God would do. It's a beautiful picture of what Christ did for you and me on the cross. He shed his blood. He gave his life for us. That's how much he loves us. So now we can understand why our actions could never merit God's eternal blessing of eternal life because God has a better way. God is providing the sacrifice, not our deeds, but his deed applied to us when we place our faith in Jesus Christ. Now we come to the objections and implications of justification. Verse 27. Paul says, where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No. Because of the law or principle, 
that requires faith. When the Apostle Paul asks, where is boasting? The question is particularly addressed to the Jews because they had the law and they were inclined to boast and think they had it all together. Did they? No. The Gentiles have it all together. No. <laughs> we all have the same need. We need forgiveness. But that forgiveness doesn't come because we're good. If that were the case, we could boast. Look how good I was. I really, you know, deserve. No. no. <laughs> Boasting is excluded. It is shut out. It is eliminated. Because it's not our work. It's what God does. I love Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace, you are saved through faith. And this salvation is a gift. It's not by works, not as a result of our good works. Because if it were, people could boast. It's a gift. You know, when you get a gift at Christmas, you say, man, look how good I was. <laughs> Or do you say, thank you for this gift? Friends, let's say thank you to God. Let's honor him. Paul says this, For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Jesus was asked in John 6, 28, What must we do to be doing the work of God, the works of God. Here's Jesus' answer. It kind of played on that. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. You want to be doing the work that makes us right with God. It's not keeping the law. It's not giving charity. This is the work that gets us right with God, to believe in Jesus Christ, the one he sent. Verse 29, is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there's only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. If justification were by the law, then God must be the God of the Jews only. Because God gave the law to the Jews. Paul's point here is there are not two ways of salvation. There's only one way. As I've said before, the one way is because there's one God who provides salvation to Jews, to Gentiles, to everyone. Now, this passage of scripture has led some to say Paul is at odds with James. I don't believe he is. I think James is talking to Christians. I think here Paul is speaking to unbelievers or talking about how a person gets right with God. How do they become saved? James is talking about once we're saved, what then? And some people have accused people who teach what Paul is teaching as being, and here's the term, antinomian. Okay, what does that mean? Anti is the word against, right? Opposed to. Nomos is the word for law in Greek. So it's against the law. Or in another way of saying it, you're just lawless if you believe that. 
If you believe you're justified by faith in Christ, you've rejected the law. You're just lawless. You're just rebels. You've denied the holiness of God. Is that true? It wasn't true for Paul. We know that. And I don't believe it's true for people who follow Paul's teaching either. We don't deny holiness. We uphold holiness. Let me put it this way. When we trust in God, when we place our faith in him, in Christ, does that make us more or less likely to sin? For me, it makes me less likely to sin. And I believe the same is true for you. Knowing that your salvation was purchased by another and that was given to you, that doesn't make you want to go out and live like hell. No, it makes you want to honor the God who gave that to us. It makes us more motivated. And once we study the scriptures and see all that God has done for us in his righteousness and his holiness and his love for us, man, we get fired up. We get to where we want to serve God. It's not, oh, I have to do this or I can't do that. It's like, man, I have an opportunity to walk with God today. Isn't that great? How can I serve him? What is God going to bring today that I have an opportunity to honor him? Lord, I can't, I can't wait to see what you're going to do today. Give me an opportunity to honor your name. Remember the inmates together in the cell we started talking about? Why was it good news that they were guilty? If they know they're guilty before a just and holy God and then come to him to be forgiven through faith in Christ, they will be. Sometimes the hardest thing for us to do as people is to admit we have a need. Once we know we have a need, and that's what Paul's been painting this, what seems like a negative picture to us today. Once we know we have a need, and we know God can meet that need, we know where to go to have our needs met. We understand that God will buy us out of the slave market of sin as he did another long ago. Back in the 18th century, a young boy was born into a Christian home. For the first six years of his life, he heard the truths of the gospel, and he was loved. Sadly, though, his parents died. The orphan boy went to live with his relatives. There he was mistreated and abused and ridiculed for his faith in Christ. The boy couldn't tolerate the situation, and finally, he fled and joined the Royal Navy. In the Navy, the boy's life went downhill. He became known as a brawler. He was whipped or flogged many times, and he even participated in some of his comrades being keel-hauled. Finally, while he was still young, he deserted the Royal Navy and fled to Africa. And he attached himself to a Portuguese slave trading ship. There his life reached its lowest point. 
There were times when he actually ate off the floor on his hands and knees. He escaped and then became attached to another slave trader as the first mate on his ship. But the young man's pattern of life had become so depraved, he couldn't stay out of trouble. As the story goes, he stole the ship's whiskey and got so drunk, he fell overboard. Yeah. (laughs) He fell overboard. And just as he was getting ready to drown, one of his shipmates took the harpoon and harpooned him and got him back on board, saved his life. But he kept a great scar on his abdomen for the rest of his life as a result. Well, in the midst of a great storm off the coast of Scotland, when days and days were filled with pumping water out of the boat, the young man began to reflect on the scripture he had heard as a young boy. He was marvelously converted. The new life John Newton found is reflected in his own heartfelt words, familiar to millions now. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. I was blind, but now I see. John Newton, a man of God's grace, marvelously captured the truth of Romans chapter 3. Father God, I thank you for your grace. Lord, it's been kind of a downer reflecting all the ways that mankind falls short, but it is truth. Your word is true. And Father, though we fall short, you have provided a pathway to forgiveness. And it's not in our deeds, but it is in your grace in providing your son who died on the cross, who paid the penalty of sin, all sin, and then rose again, proving that it was a payment that was complete and satisfied you. Father, in this way, you both showed yourself to be just. You didn't just wink at sin and turn away. You paid the full penalty but also you extend grace to all of us. Father, if there's anyone here who doesn't know for sure that he or she has your forgiveness and is going to heaven, I pray right now in the quietness of their heart, they will trust Christ who died on the cross for them. And Father, for those of us who have known this truth for a while, help us to have a renewed appreciation for what Christ did for us and your great love for us and help that to be something that moves us to live holy lives. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.